again. Uh, We come to the seventh commandment in your series on the ten. And that commandment, as has already been mentioned, is you shall not commit adultery. And I I have to confess, um, I'm a bit intimidated uh, for, now I have to add to the list, um, feeling mildly superfluous, Um, intimidated in that your pastor's Brian Habig. I mean, I have no idea what I'm doing here in this pulpit. Uh, I don't, that's not really a joke. I mean that. I mean, you, you have, as your pastor, a uniquely gifted man. I hope you know that. Um, so I thank God that Brian Habig is in our presbytery, uh, and I thank God for your sake that he is your pastor. So that's kind of intimidating. The other, um, and now the, the mildly superfluous part is the fact, the way that Patrick and Mike have already led so well. I mean, Mike has already prayed my sermon into you. So I don't really have much to add. Uh, of course, I will take the full measure of my time, don't you worry. But um, I, ju- I, I just, this is just wonderful. It's such a good day. So good to be with you. The other aspect of my intimidation has come from the Ten Commandments. Hello. I mean, Brian gave me the option of picking a different commandment. Um, So I I could have gone somewhere else. But, I, you know, let's just stick with the plan. It'll be good for me. And it has been good for me. Because as I've studied, as I've prayed, as I've read, for these two words in Hebrew, Exodus 20, verse 14, is two words. My intimidation has moved over into an excitement. And here's why. As Brian mentioned last week, I've been listening in so that I have a clue what's going on. As Brian mentioned last week, the the law of God, the Ten Commandments, are a mirror. They're a mirror to us. They show us uh, how bad it really is. Whether we want to see it or not, the Ten Commandments are extremely honest And they put the mirror in our face and they said, no, see, see, it really is this bad. The commandments are a mirror to us, of of us and our need. And they are also a mirror, actually, to God. A mirror in which we might see God's character. So on the one hand, the, the law shows us how far we how far we fall short. On the other hand, the law shows us uh, the glories of our Creator God. And and it is that that has made me excited because as I've worked through this passage, and this is where uh, Mike has kind of made me superfluous, the point in my view of this commandment is faithfulness. That we might reflect the faithfulness of the Creator God. So I've already kind of, uh, that's the main punch, right? There it is. You've got it at the outset. I haven't even read the passage yet. Um, But we're going to unpack it a bit. Here's why I think the law is a a mirror of God's character. Genesis chapter 1, this is going to be review for most of you. Um, Genesis chapter 1, God created mankind on the sixth day, the pinnacle, as it were, of creation. God created male and female in his image. Now, that's an extremely unique phrase in the scriptures. And in all of creation, it is ascribed to only one aspect of creation, and it's mankind. 
there's something unique, distinct about people that were made in God's image. What that means is we are designed to reflect His glories. That our lives on this earth were designed to reflect the glories of God. But Genesis 3 happened. And in Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve sinned against God. And by their sin, they took the mirror that they were supposed to be to the world and they shattered it. They broke their imaging capabilities, as it were. Not only did they break their imaging capabilities, they broke everything. Nothing works the way that it's supposed to anymore, not least of which are imaging God, reflecting His glories. So what we have in the law is God showing us what we would look like. Is God showing us how life would work had Genesis 3 not happened? The law shows us what we ought to be like. And it reveals to us, therefore, the character of God. If our main purpose in this world is to reflect the glory of God back to Him and to our neighbors, and if we broke that ability, the law shows us what it would have been like had we not. The Ten Commandments are about God showing us what our lives are to look like because they show us Him and His character. So I'll read the passage uh, and, and also Jesus' comment on it in Matthew chapter 5. And I'll pray for us. And we'll jump in. From Exodus chapter 20, the passage is printed for you in your bulletin. And Matthew chapter 5. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall not commit adultery. And Jesus said, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, would you open our eyes by your Spirit that we might behold wonderful things about you in this portion of your gracious law. For Jesus' name's sake, amen. You shall not commit adultery. Even as I say those words, I know that in this room there are probably at least four different reactions going on. Some of you, just by my uttering those words feel all the shame and all the guilt come back because you have committed adultery. There are others of you, when I say those words, that you immediately think about your parents and the adultery that precipitated their divorce and how that has ruined your life or at least made it miserable. Some of you think about your own spouse and how she or he had better never cheat on you. Some of you think that this commandment has nothing to do with you because you're not married. Well, what does God, who spoke these words, what does He want us to be thinking about as we hear them and as we reflect upon them? 
As has often been the case in this series, we're going to look at a couple of broad topics. What is this commandment saying about us? And what can we learn about God? And then toward the end, some bits of application. So first of all, what is this command saying about us? And we really could spend all day here and miss the point. So I'm just going to delineate what I think the scriptures delineate as far as what adultery is and what this commandment is calling us to. As with all the other commands also, these commands do two things. They require something of us and they prohibit something or some things. This is, you shall not commit adultery, is clearly a prohibition. But just because it's telling us not to do something doesn't mean that there's nothing that we should do. It prohibits some things and it requires others. First, what does it prohibit? This commandment prohibits cheating. (laughs) In two ways. There's an act. Adultery is an act. It's... As one pastor has said, and I know there are young ears here, so I'm, tr- I'm trying to be sensitive to that. But the scriptures are pretty unblushing in their honesty about us. One pastor has said that adultery is any sexual activity that violates the covenant of marriage. Your mind may go back to the Clinton era, um, trying to delineate what is and what isn't. What constitutes and what doesn't constitute? I think this summary is good. Any sexual activity that violates the covenant of marriage. So adultery is an act. But also from Jesus' comment in Matthew chapter 5, we see that adultery is more than that. Just like you shall not murder is more than don't kill people without the law behind you, as it were. So, you shall not commit adultery is more than don't cheat on your spouse. It has to do with an attitude. So, adultery is both an an act and an attitude. A a lust, an inappropriate desire to have that which is not yours in the sexual realm. Now, we need to acknowledge the fact that adultery rarely, if ever, begins with sex. There are those of you in this room that have gone down that road. And when you started down that road, you never intended to wind up where you did. Because it doesn't start there. It starts in the heart. It starts with a desire for connection. And before you know it, this relationship that you have has taken on a life of its own that you didn't expect. And if you'd have been asked, you would have said, I'll never be there. Adultery starts in the heart. You can be faithful to the commandment on the outside, but what does the inside look like? A pastor from the 17th, 16th century in Geneva, John Calvin, said, Let him who does not touch a woman not flatter himself, as if he could not be accused of this sin. While in the meantime, his heart inwardly burns with lust. You can keep keep the commandment on the outside. Most of us probably have. But what's going on in our hearts? So adultery prohibits the act and the attitude. And if there are any of us left standing on our feet, it also requires things of us. 
This commandment requires that we pursue sexual and marital faithfulness in our own lives. In order to be faithful to this command, we must pursue something. It's not just avoid something, but pursue something. Marital and sexual faithfulness. So even if you're not married, this commandment applies to you. Because it's about using your body in a way that is faithful. But not only my own life. (laughs) This commandment also reaches horizontally, not just to my spouse, but to others that I'm in relationship with. I must not only pursue marital and sexual faithfulness in my own life, but I must foster it in the lives of others. That has all kinds of ramifications, all kinds of implications. Proverbs chapter 4, verses 23 through 25, we're told, Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Put away from you crooked speech and put devious talk far from you. Let your eyes look directly forward and your gaze be straight before you. Three bits of application. Keep your heart. Starts with the heart starts with the heart. It also applies to our words. Do, do the words that you use foster marital and sexual faithfulness in the lives of people you're talking with? What are the jokes that you allow yourself to say? Do they really foster the kind of faithfulness that God is after? What about what our eyes see? I read in some of my reading this week, nine out of ten of the couplings that happen on television are with unmarried people. So, if you watch any amount of television, 90% of the physical intimacy events that either you see or are referred to are adulterous. That's what we're taking in. That's not even talking about movies. See, if we're going to live in light of the seventh commandment, our lives are going to change. They must. They need to. Thomas Watson, who was a Puritan in the 1600s, said that illicit images secretly convey poison to the heart. Now, this was 400 years before the internet. But there's nothing new under the sun. We just changed the technology a little bit. So, and and a lot of the, the Puritans in their time spoke against plays, against going to plays. What we have now are movies. But there's nothing new under the sun. The same kind of adulterous relationships happen in the movies that were happening in the plays. The same kind of unfaithfulness is taking place on our computer screens and in magazines as was on uh, on drawings 400 years ago. But what Watson is saying and what we need to hear is that what we take in secretly conveys poison to the heart. We need to be aware of that, especially in the culture in which we live So Exodus chapter 20 and Matthew chapter 5 catch us all up short. We are all adulterers. 
all of us, either an act or an attitude, for failure to pursue or failure to avoid. We are all condemned by the seventh commandment. One commentator said, Some are concerned with keeping their record intact, but the biblical definition of adultery renders that a self-righteous pipe dream for all of us. Those who place their confidence in their own righteousness eventually have to rationalize their sin and downplay its seriousness. By the standards of the seventh commandment, none of us is left standing. Fantasizing about a body one sees on the beach, ignoring one's spouse or denying him or her our full sympathy and devotion, using a date as an object rather than uh, viewing that person as a person. All adultery. We all want to justify ourselves with technical and clinical definitions. How far is too far? How far can I go and it not be? But by the Lord's standard, none of us passes the test. And our culture accepts and even expects adultery. It's the air that we breathe. We are a sex-saturated and sexually crazed culture. Who among us is immune? Either an act or attitude, we all stand condemned. Now that you're hopefully feeling guilty, set that aside for a second. Okay? We'll come back to it. But take that heap, that pile of sin and guilt and shame, set it aside. Because I want to answer, I want to ask the question what does this commandment tell us about God? And then once we have that in context, we'll come back to that heap of junk over here that is our soul. So what does this tell us about God? Yes, the law is a mirror to us of our sin and of our neediness, and it is also a mirror of God. All of the commandments. But the seventh commandment particularly is a mirror to the core of God's character of faithfulness. Faithfulness. Fidelity. As I mentioned, Genesis chapter 1, we were created in God's image. And we were designed to reflect His glory back to Him. In Genesis chapter 3, we broke that ability by our sin. And you and I would have done no differently than Adam and Eve had done. But, though God would have been in, in, in completely within His rights to have wiped the slate clean, he didn't. Genesis chapter 3, he could have said, forget it, I'm done. Bad idea, I'm content with the relationship that we have here, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, that's good enough, forget people. But he didn't. Instead of wiping humanity out, God set himself to restore the image that we broke. And he set himself to restore the image that we broke by means of a covenant relationship. By means of a marriage. God married himself to a people. And we see that beginning to unfold in even Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. The first great promise of the gospel when God said to the evil one, you and the seed, the seed, your seed and the seed of the woman will be at enmity. There will be a rivalry, a hatred between the two of you. But her seed 
will crush your head. You'll strike his heel, but he will crush your head. There in Genesis chapter 3, just a few verses after Adam and Eve took the bite and the universe was disintegrated, God promises to stay engaged, to stay involved, and actually rescue a people for himself. So from Genesis chapter 3, all the way to Revelation, the story of the Bible is about the unfolding of God's rescue plan. God staying engaged with that people, covenanting himself to be their God and for them to be his people. Genesis chapter 12, God says to Abram, I'm going to make you great. I'm going to make your name great. I will bless you. And through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. In Genesis chapter 15, God cuts a covenant with Abram. But Abram doesn't walk through the pieces. If you're familiar with that chapter, Genesis chapter 15, God God tells Abram to take animals, cut them in half, and lay them on either sides of of a path. The idea being that Abram, you and I are going to enter into a relationship here. And if either of us fail to keep up our end of the bargain, may it be to us as it has been to these animals. It's bloody. It's gory. But here's the thing. Abram didn't walk through the pieces. God did. Saying all the way back in Genesis chapter 15, I will be the faithful one. I will be the faithful one to keep this marriage together. And what we see in the history of God's people is a perpetual spiritual prostitution. Even after they got the law, the the passage that we're in, Exodus 20, Exodus 19 through 20, God formalizes this relationship with the whole people of Israel as they're gathered after having been rescued from slavery. He formalizes this relationship. And in chapter 32... They're worshiping a golden calf that they've fashioned and formed. And it doesn't get any better. The beginning of their history was definitely a foreshadowing of the rest of their history. Perpetual spiritual prostitutes. That is God's people. That is us. That is who God married himself to. The book of Hosea demonstrates that. Maybe more clearly than anywhere else in Scripture, though the word, I am your husband, shows up elsewhere. That, that, that idea, that concept of God marrying himself to a people is all over the Scriptures. But in Hosea, it's, it's so painfully clear. Using language that we don't want our children to know. That's how God refers to us. And yet, At the end of time, Revelation 21, we are told that the bride is ready for her husband. You know what all of history is going to? A marriage banquet. A wedding party between this faithful covenant God and his whore of a wife. Who he married himself to. And he committed himself to. And in his faithfulness, he sustained. And so all who look to that God are a part of that bride. And part of what God does for that bride is restore to them the image that they broke. In the person of Christ, 
We're told in Colossians chapter 1 that Jesus is the image of God. And we're told later in Colossians chapter 3 that those who have trusted in Christ, those who have trusted in the image of God for their salvation, are being renewed in the image of their Creator. That is the great work of Christ on our behalf. Jesus did not just come so that He could get more souls into heaven. Jesus came to fulfill the purpose of God from all of creation, to have a people for Himself who would reflect His glory who would demonstrate his perfections and his holiness and his beauty. That's what Jesus came to do, is to restore a people unto that end. And that's what in Christ we are able to be partakers of. So the law shows us what we ought to look like as those who are being restored in the image of our Creator. If you trust in Christ, you have tasted of God's covenant faithfulness to you in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Therefore, you shall not commit adultery. You shall be faithful because he is faithful and he has been faithful to you. Ed Clowney, who I believe has since gone on to be with the Lord and is seeing the things that we're just talking about now, says, in spite of the high divorce rate and the cavalier attitude we seem to have about marriage in our culture, something in our human soul hankers for the elusive fidelity that marriage promises. So saying that marriage is a good thing for Christians and non-Christians alike because it happened before the fall. God ordained it before the fall. God ordained sexuality before the fall. And just like everything else, the fall broke marriage and sexuality which Christ is about restoring. But there's something in our soul that longs for that kind of fidelity. Clowney goes on to say, there is a structure that God has placed in the world as a picture of His fidelity to His people. The purpose of marriage is ultimately to reflect for us God's love for us. And God's love for us is to be reflected in our marriages. Phil Riken, former pastor at 10th Pres in Philadelphia, now president of Wheaton, said, For Christians to have sex with someone who is not a spouse is to violate the holiness of their union with Christ. We show our covenant loyalty to God by maintaining our sexual fidelity to our spouse or our future spouse. See, keep this in context of the whole of the Ten Commandments. The first four, we, you have heard, has been mentioned, deal primarily with our vertical relationship with the Lord. The latter six deal with our horizontal relationships with one another. But the two interplay. The first table of the law, one through four, and the second table of the law, five through ten, overlap and interplay. So, and Calvin talked about it this way, that you, the knowledge of God and the knowledge of self are wrapped up together. Such that the more you learn about yourself, the more in Christ you ought to learn about God. And the more you learn about God, the more you learn about yourself. So even though the seventh commandment has primarily to do immediately, in the immediate context, has to do with marriage. What I hope we see is that the seventh commandment flows out of a vertical relationship with the Lord. And it ought to demonstrate His fidelity to us. 
Okay, I acknowledge the fact that the sermon title is kind of strange. Um, so now it's time. I think we have enough groundwork laid that I can explain what I'm thinking in the sermon title. Hi-fi, high-def. All right. I know hi-fi is like so 1980. Um, but there was a time when hi-fi was the, the cool new thing. And uh, the, the idea with hi-fi or high-fidelity is to get the best reproduction possible, either in visual or, uh, or acoustically. And there are several of you that are better musicians and better um, music lovers than I am, so I'm probably saying things all wrong. But the intent with high fidelity is you take the real thing, you record it, and when you play it back on a hi-fi system, it sounds so close to the real thing that you don't, if you closed your eyes, you wouldn't necessarily know that you're not in the concert hall. The Israelites, as God gave them the Ten Commandments, were to be the hi-fi reproduction of God's character. So that those that didn't have a relationship with Yahweh, the covenant God of the Bible, could listen in on their lives and go, that, that's a beautiful piece of music. I want to know about that God. That was the Israelites. What about us as Christians who have not just a few verbal promises from God, but we have 66 books worth of promises from God? How much more should we be a, an accurate representation, a glorifying to God reproduction of His image and His character? We who have seen Christ Jesus, we who have experienced His faithfulness to us, so, you know, now the cool thing is high def, 1080p, right? I know it's totally cheesy. But if the Israelites are to be hi-fi, come on. Because of who Christ is for us, our lives can be better than that, can be richer than that. The faithfulness of Yahweh in 1080p, that's, that should be our lives. That can be our lives to accurately represent to the people in this world, in our community, in our families, what the faithfulness of God looks like, whether you're married or single. How can we keep this commandment? And, and we're going to have to revisit that pile here in a second. How do we keep this commandment? Or, or better yet, how can we reflect God's faithfulness in our sexuality and in our marriages? Three simple things, but maybe not altogether easy. (laughs) Remember your God, that He is faithful to forgive you your sin. Remember your God, that He is faithful to forgive your sin. Because of Jesus' faithfulness to the end, because of the fact that Jesus never had a lustful thought, that Jesus never committed adultery either in act or in attitude, that Jesus maintained faithfulness to His Father until the very end. All those who trust in that Savior are granted that faithfulness. It covers you. His righteousness that He earned by never sinning is yours in Christ. Yours. So those of you that have committed adultery, 
the act, or the attitude. All of us. In Christ, your sins are forgiven. That sin does not characterize you anymore. The guilt and the shame that weigh you down and that keep you from moving toward other people again is covered in Christ. It doesn't own you. Jesus owns you. That's why we can say from 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to purify us from all unrighteousness. You see, if you're trusting in Christ, that means that Jesus paid the penalty for your sin. And it would be unjust of God to punish you for something that He's already punished Christ for. He can't do that. It would be unjust. So as you trust in Christ, your sins are forgiven. There is no more punishment for you. So that act, that attitude that has had such grip on your soul, needs to be informed by this fact that He is faithful, though I am not. So remember your God, that He is faithful to forgive you your sin. Adultery is not the unpardonable sin. Unrepentance is the unpardonable sin. So if you see yourself as the sinner that you are, repent. Come to Christ and know that He is faithful to forgive you. Furthermore, secondly, remember your God that He is faithful to change you. He's faithful to forgive you and then He's also faithful to change you. Make you into a new person. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul has these words that don't start out real encouraging. Paul says, Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. (laughs) Great, Paul. But he continues. And such were some of you. Verb tenses are so important. (laughs) And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. You may not be what you want to be. You may not be what you ultimately one day will be. You may not be what you hope to be. But in Christ, you are not what you were. God is faithful to forgive you your sin. And He is faithful to change you. And remember thirdly that He is faithful to empower you. Even today. Ed Clowney says, It is in the hope of His perfection." And in the power of His Spirit that we can begin to put into practice the flickering candle of purity in our sexual lives and in our steadfast love of our Savior. Jesus transforms the law by providing what the law in itself could never provide, the power of His presence in His Spirit to change our hearts. Indeed, the gospel bids us fly and it gives us wings. Paul tells us in Galatians 5 that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, 
peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. 1 Corinthians 10, 12-14 Therefore anyone who thinks that he stands ought to take heed, lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but will provide you with the temptation the way of escape, that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, beloved, flee from idolatry. Because of God's promise of escape, flee from idolatry. You are not powerless. In Christ, the Spirit of God lives in you to will and to act according to His good purpose. You are not powerless. Sin does not own you, though it tugs at you. Christ owns you, and your life in Him is hidden with Christ in God. You are not alone. You are not powerless. So friends, remember your God that He's faithful to forgive your sin. He's faithful to change you. And He's faithful to empower you. You may know the children's story by Dr. Seuss, Horton Hatches the Egg. And if it weren't as long as it was, I might have read it to you. But here's the line. Horton sat on a bird's egg because the bird was lazy. You may remember the story. But Horton decided that he would take care of this egg. A bird egg, an elephant. And it's just preposterous. But the line is, I said what I meant, and I meant what I said, an elephant's faithful 100%. None of us are elephants. None of us are spiritual giants. You and I, the church, is that fragile little egg that's being protected by God Almighty so that when the time comes, we might hatch out as little bird-looking elephants. We are a curious-looking bunch. But we reflect our Father. We reflect His image as we look to Him. Our ability to keep this commandment is not in ourselves It is found in our daily dependence upon the one who is faithful. So friends, entrust yourself to Him. Entrust yourself to Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sin. Entrust yourself to Jesus Christ for real change. Entrust yourself to Christ for the power to reflect His glorious image to the world that is around us. And know that as you do that, if we are faithless, He remains faithful. Because he cannot deny himself. Would you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, we confess that we are not faithful. But we also confess that we have a Savior who was and is and is interceding before the throne even now for us who trust in him. Give us the strength to believe. Give us the freedom to repent of our sin. Give us the joy to embrace our Savior.
and give us love for one another such that we would care for our own marriages and the marriages of those around us. For Jesus' name's sake, amen.